Hi, I'm Nicole Davidson, and this is the Negotiation in Real Life podcast, the show where we take the lessons learned in real life negotiations to help you build your negotiation toolkit. We'll be hearing from lawyers, entrepreneurs, and senior business people about their best and worst negotiations. Negotiation is one of the most important skills for success in business and in life, but it's a skill we are rarely taught. For many of us, we develop our skills purely through trial and error. We see what works, discard what doesn't, and if we're lucky, we'll have a few good mentors along the way. In this podcast, we're going to give you access to an even greater range of negotiation mentors. Enjoy this episode and please reach out if you have any questions. In today's episode of Negotiation in Real Life, I speak with Faris Aranke, the founder and CEO of Sheer Ghetto Consulting. Having spent over 20 years delivering strategic change for the corporate and non-corporate worlds, Faris has experienced firsthand the fine differences between strategic success and failure. His work has spanned numerous companies from global behemoths to small startups in numerous countries across a range of sectors, supporting them all to unlock strategic success. Over time, Farris has worked to distill his knowledge of how to solve complex problems in a structured manner, combined with his skill on engaging effectively with others and his ability to quickly determine the barriers to a strategy's success. On top of leading his business, Farris is now an accomplished speaker and a contributor for a variety of outlets. In this episode, we chat about finding the hidden negotiations in the workplace. We talk about 27 ways people say no and how it is the start of a conversation. We talk about the importance of understanding the people in the room, the whiffums and the nams, you'll need to stay tuned for that one, the platinum rule, negotiating across cultures, when to haggle and much, much more. I hope you take as much value from this episode as I did from my interesting discussions with Faris. So welcome to Negotiation in Real Life, Faris. Thank you for having me, Nicole. Pleasure, and it's nice of you to, to join us all the way from London. So always nice to have some of our overseas visitors on the program. So Faris, we're going to be talking about some of your experiences of negotiation and some of the challenges that you've come across and the lessons that you've learned. Before we get into that, perhaps you could introduce yourself briefly for our listeners. Sure. Uh, as, as you said, my name is Faris Ranke and uh, I run a small consulting firm here in London in the UK, which is all about strategy and emotional intelligence. So basically, I help teams work better at making decisions and getting on with each other. As you can imagine, there's a lot of negotiation in there. Absolutely. And some fantastic foundational skills for a good negotiator as well, because you know, that ability to understand others and collaborate is really at the heart of value-based negotiations. So that's really interesting. But obviously, you've got a background now in this strategy piece, and I know you've worked for some fairly large names through your career, but you didn't start that way. You started as a teacher. I'm interested to know how's that impacted on the way that you negotiate? Sure. Uh, yeah, I did start as a high school teacher and uh, I had the joy of teaching two subjects, which was uh, maths and economics and uh, how it really impacted me. Like The economics was lovely because everyone opted in. So everyone was really passionate about it. And that was fine. It was the maths. Uh, now, maths is compulsory. I'm sure it's the same over in, uh, in your region. And uh, you can imagine a lot of kids didn't want to learn maths. They didn't see the point of learning maths. They had no interest. So every actually every class involving maths in particular was a negotiation. 
uh, was a, you have to learn something that you don't want to learn. I didn't realize at the time, I had no awareness it was a negotiation, wasn't aware that mm. every day I'd be fighting for six hours a day or maybe seven hours a day with uh, with young people who don't, don't, don't fight clean. Um, you know, <laughs> they can stamp their feet and they can just say no. So um, without knowing it, I learned the, st- the art of how to get people to buy into things that they might not initially see as in their benefit. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I think it is, as you said, often we don't even know that we're negotiating because negotiation is such a broad concept. When I talk to people, they go, oh, no, I I never negotiate. You know, I start to ask them, you know, do you have partners that you need to work out who's going to do the dishes or where you're going on holidays or, you know, have you ever bought something in a shop? So there's a lot of these small negotiations. And as you've sort of said, the skills that you use in those less obvious negotiations are exactly the same as what you use in the bigger negotiations. So it's a really good learning ground. So tell me a little bit then, you know, having left the teaching profession and, and having these you know, regular negotiations with adolescents. And, you know, the other thing we know is that the brain is not fully developed through adolescence. So it's very difficult to negotiate with people at that stage of life anyway. What sort of negotiations did you then get into in the business world? So, um, as you said, there's uh, negotiations all around you in the business world. And uh, I realized when I got into the business world that um, trying to convince others of things was the ultimate negotiation. Um, Now, I I quickly moved when I moved into the business world, moved into the strategy world. So uh, you're in a place where you're formulating what companies should do. And, you know, you may have guessed from my maths and economics background, a very analytical person. So I would do a lot of research and work with teams where we'd come up with answers that we were pretty certain were correct. And then I was pretty shocked when you'd go and sit with people and they go, no, no, I'm not, not, we're not doing that, you know. Um, And in fact, one of my first days, uh, I initially worked in a company and then I moved into consulting. And in one of my first days in consulting, I always remember a very senior person gave me a slide uh, that said the 27 ways people say no um, politely, which are things like, no, that works somewhere else, but it doesn't work here, or uh, we've tried that before. Um, and um, those were the things I had to laugh on my first day because I'd heard so much that and I hadn't realized. And that was always the jumping off point for a negotiation, really. But trying to land strategy with people um, is still what I do today. Um, and I love it. But really, that, that, those, that's the main bulk of my negotiations in the business world. So when you think about those, because it's it's really interesting, I think, as well, that connection between where are you negotiating versus where you're influencing. And, you know, my view of that is that every negotiation is an influencing process, but sometimes you've got to influence people to even come to the negotiation table. And so at least in your strategy assignments, you've got the, the business owners or the, the senior executives at the table with you. Have you got an example of where you were able to convince somebody of a process that you were recommending that they were really against at the beginning? And, and how did you do it? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got loads. As I say, that is my world today. Um and, um, you know, I could talk you through the formula, or there isn't a formula, but the kind of methodology. Um, and, uh, but to give you specific examples, you know, I'll give you specific examples that can, have gone right and have gone wrong. Um, uh, and I'm sure we'll cover both of those during this. Yeah, this absolutely. I love, I love the learning from the ones that have gone wrong as much as the, um, the repetition of what's worked. Yeah, but it, let's, let's always start on a positive, right? You know, so where I am today... Um, now, I've sort of 
really worked on these skills and uh you know actually teaching them as well and you know i'm sure we, we've discussed before you and i nicole what a great crossover is there in our worlds but fundamentally it's about uh, you know the negotiations i do today about understanding the people in the room and sometimes in the strategy world, it's not just one on one. You're often with a board, a team of board members, and you can imagine the different personalities in that group. So before I go into any, you know, big meeting, big workshop, or strategy um, creation session, I'll get to know each individual person. And that can only, that you only necessarily need 45 minutes to really understand their style, their drivers. You know, I always talk about people uh, as whiffims and whammies. Uh, is, is, are those things you've heard of before? Whiffim, certainly. If you're just talking the same acronym as me, it's what's in it for me. What's in it for me, yeah, for, for your listeners. And whammy is the diametric opposite. What's against my interests? All right. So if you can work out what drives a person, what holds them back, and it can be anything like macro, it could be, you know, business topics, but it could also be, do you know what, I've got this thing going on with my kid's school, um, and I just need to get out of here by by 1pm. So that's, you, know, you can achieve that for me, then that's, so really getting to know the characters it is a large part of my setting up, influencing and negotiating. And then, uh, then it's really, you know, being very clear on the objective, listening to opinions and flexing constantly in that session, in the sessions that I'm in, um, to adapt to what they need. You know, and I always talk to people about, uh, as kids, we would, it was drummed into us, I don't know about you, but it was drummed into me, the golden rule, right? Treat others as you would want to be treated. And then I actually realized there's a better rule, right? Treat others how they want to be treated. That's the whole point of getting to know them. And that's the whole point of flexing your own style and, and filling in the gaps. Absolutely. Um, I call that the platinum rule. That's the platinum rule. Better, yeah, than, exactly. better than gold. And, um, yeah, it, it's that understanding, isn't it, that, you know, not everyone's like us. We're all different and we all want different things and want to be treated different differently. And I think that's a really important um, lesson for people to take out of any negotiation. Yeah. So, so to give you a specific example, let me tell you a great little company. So I was working with this little company. It's only about 50 people, but doing successfully well. Uh, it's, it's senior team was five individuals and uh, they brought me in to help them develop their strategy. Now I walked into this place and I discovered they were doing, I did a quick audit. They were doing over 150 strategic projects. And now for a company that size, I would normally expect no more than 30, right? And so if, you, if you're telling me this is strategically important, how can you do 150 things? Um, so when I confronted them with this, they, they said, yeah, we, that makes sense. That's very logical, but we love each of these projects. We're not letting go of any of them, okay? They're all strategically important. That's the phrase they kept using. I said, okay, okay, uh, right. They're not my projects. This is to help you. You brought me in. So I took it away. I looked at each of those projects. I said, look, I said, look, these people are too emotionally attached to these projects because, you know, the CFO had created 20 of them and they were his pet projects and the CEO had created. So I, I decided I have to depersonalize these. So I took each project and I turned them into a Pokemon card, right? And I turned them, I don't know if you about you, but I used to spend a lot of time as a child playing Top Trumps where you play cards against each other. So I turned these 150 projects into 150 cards. I brought them back into the boardroom and we spent two hours playing Top Trumps. And uh, within the first hour, people were like, this card keeps losing. I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, that's your project. It's your stats. It's, it's your benefit case. I took it from you. And they go, well, why are we doing this? I said, I don't know. You know, so they're like, well, let's get rid of these 20 projects. They're very weak. Right. And after two hours, we managed to get the 150 down to 20 projects um, just by changing their point of view. Now, now people say that maybe that's not a negotiation. That is a negotiation, right? It's just, it's really flipping the framing of a, of something that people need to resolve 
um, and having fun at the same time. Yeah, well, it's a really safe way for people to get their interests across, isn't it? Because what you're doing is you're not then directly arguing about my project versus your project. But what I like about that strategy that you've put in place there is that it's actually quite neutral. So it's, it is, as you said, taking the emotion and the personalisation out of it, um, which is a really good way. You know, you start to look at things, not only looking at your own projects differently, but you start to look at other people's projects in a different way, whereas potentially before you were always a bit biased against them because they weren't yours. So I think that's really creative. And what I found that people weren't, never admitted this, but I think it was the first time all five of them had ever read the 150 projects that were going on. Um, they'd always heard the title and got, and therefore probably led to other assumptions around what it actually involved. And that, was, that alone was worth the, the investment at the time. Sounds great. So that's a, that's a nice example of something that you've had a success and you've taken a really different and innovative approach to it. Let's jump to the less successful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, and believe me, I've got a lot of those. Actually, um, when, when, when you, you sort of told me about uh, uh, sharing some of my, my uh, less successful, my failures, um, I actually think back to my teaching days and I think to a car crash of a, a negotiation uh, very early on and it wasn't with one of the children it was with one of the parents now you can imagine parents are, are fiercely uh, loyal and want to defend their children now I had a situation where in one of the schools I was teaching I had this child a student who uh, wasn't particularly uh, very good at my subject in fact he wasn't particularly very good at many subjects and the school had a policy if the child failed three subjects they would be kicked out of the school now as it happened uh, my subject was the third subject that he had failed so for some reason, which I still question today, I was told to bring his mother in and inform her of this fact that he'd failed his third <laughs> subject. And that's where you needed to have a negotiation. That's where I needed to have a good negotiation. So <laughs> the I was very junior. <laughs> I was very junior at the time. And just to put this in context, this is in a uh, the school is a private school in a um, in a Latin American country. So the dynamic was the parents are super wealthy and and, and used to having their own way of things. Now, this uh, lovely lady came and sat in front of me and I explained very logically and rationally about the exam he'd taken. I even showed her the exam and explained it felt, basically. And then I said, so the consequence of this is he will be leaving the school. And uh, she just turned around and said, no, he's not. Okay, so it wasn't even a go. I said, well, it, it is, it is. And she said to me, look, look, Ferris, um, I'm sure you're meaning well and I'm sure you marked the exam correctly, but I think we need to have the exam remarked. What will this take? <laughs> um, and so the negotiation began and I was sitting there saying look I, I, you trust me in a professional uh, pride I, I I mark this correctly it's all fine and so she started offering me things you know could, could uh, maybe you need a watch maybe you need a car maybe all completely unethical in the teaching yep. sense and, um, in any sense have, really <laughs> in any sense maybe you have a favorite charity you know so I loved the, her creativity she was throwing stuff and I, I was sitting there going I'm just following a process. I, yeah, I'm not sure I'm allowed to negotiate. So um, so I said, you know, I'll have to check with my boss, but I'm pretty sure I can't do this. So I stepped back in the room. And at that point, she changed her strategy. So um, she started to tell me how much she admired me and how her son had always found me his best teacher. And, mm -hmm. you know, flattery works in a lot of places. But um, again, I was bamboozled because, and I said, well, that's great to hear, but he still failed. Um, and um, 
At that point, um, I'm not, you know, for, for the more sensitive listeners, might want to put their fingers there. She then changed tack again and she came and sat on my lap. But, um, you know, I won't, I won't <laughs> explain the, the, the negotiation skills. I got really scared at this point. So I went out and brought my boss in. And, um, you know, by this time, the strategy had changed again from her side. And she went on the attack and, and said I'd been bullying her son and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, I failed horrifically in this in this thing because my boss yanked me out and said, right, look, look, I'm taking it, which she probably should have done from the outset. Yeah. Um, and the long story short was, you know, what happened in the end is the, the child stayed in the school. Uh, the parents ended up donating a new building to the school. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, whether the two whether the two have any sort of correlation, I don't know. But you know, <laughs> so, uh, on the sense of things, I failed horrifically in the task I was deemed to do, and not just that, it it, it created ripples for me, you know, um, and complications with that child in the yeah. future and stuff. And that parent, you know, never saw eye to eye with me again. But um, uh, you know, what what an experience very early on, and I. Well, it's, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, once again, I think, you know, and, and this is where I come back, one of my common themes is that, um, you know, your success in negotiation is so important around what preparation that you've done. And, you know, what it sounds like is a situation where you've been thrown in the deep end by the principal or the, the senior um, administrator into a situation where you haven't necessarily got clear authority or guidance about when this is, you've been told that there's a policy, three strikes, you're out, which is what you're trying to enforce. But then when it comes to it, they go, no, 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 there are exceptions. Um, And, you know, this is where I think in corporates, this is a sort of issue that comes up a lot of the time because we have people negotiating on behalf of businesses who aren't the ultimate decision makers. And this is one of the areas where I see a lot of negotiations go wrong because, they're told go and get this, but they're not given the bigger picture that, you know, subsequently came into play in this case where actually if you give enough money and you make a donation, your kid can stay, no problems. Three rules, you know, three <laughs> three strikes and, and you're still in. Um, yeah. and, and I think this is a real issue in the corporate world when people do come to negotiate because you're absolutely right. If you don't have the whole picture, if you don't have the authority to make the decision and you don't know what the underlying interests are, you know, what's behind the policy and when can there be exceptions because it's what's in the best interest of the organisation, it's really difficult to negotiate. So I can see why that's tough and I can see, you know, I think that connects into a lot of businesses. I, I completely agree. It also taught me on the other side uh, about the creativity that you should have and have a range of strategies and a range of things rather than, you know, I just had one thing where I kept saying no, right, and I, I wasn't showing creativity on my side, but it was certainly encourage me when I approach the table to like you say the planning and and really um have you know think through a lot of options and knowing what order to try and put them on the table as well because if you put the wrong thing on the table at the beginning all of those other things that you could have tried have fallen away as well if she'd gone to sit on your lap straight away <laughs> that might have been quite a different negotiation to, to you know the been, order yeah. that she did it um, yeah, I'm yeah. surprised. Did, did tears come into it? Because I think tears can often be a really uh, productive negotiation technique. There were tears, yes, yes. Large, largely from me, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> they were just the private ones. <laughs> I mean, I could be. I could have had a nice car and a nice watch. I'm kicking myself for years later, Nicole, but, you know. In a, well, it, um... it's interesting too because there's those big cultural overlays that come into negotiation as well in, in something like this because... You know, I guess if you take it from a Western perspective, as you said, you know, there's nothing ethical about 
taking any of those what is effectively bribes to keep the son in school. But in a different culture, that might be completely the expected way to go. Yeah, and I think I think there was shock on the other side, party side that, hang on a minute, this is normally a two-minute conversation. I don't know why we're still in this room. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, culture is a really important thing. Um, you know, I think back to a time in the business world where I was working for a, a giant steel manufacturer, which was a part of a, it just been, you know, two companies, one company had taken over another company. And so the cultures involved was it was an Indian company had taken over a Dutch company um, that had previously taken over a British company. So there's three different cultures there. Now I was in there working out a strategy for a part of a business unit and it involved working with all three of those cultures. And every meeting was such a clash. So in theory, we were all working together, but because of the cultures and the ways of working, it was a grind. So the Indian culture was so used to a sort of hierarchical, if my boss says this, I'll just do this. Uh, the Dutch culture is very consultative. If you, mm -hmm. If I'm not convinced, I am gonna, I'm going to tell you I'm not convinced, even if I'm the most junior person in this room, you know, you yeah. have to, you know, I think your idea is rubbish, I think, and I'm not afraid, all this stuff. Whereas the English, you know, there's a lot of passive aggressiveness and yeah. um, all the time. So I was like, every day I was like, I was going home going, we didn't achieve anything in that meeting. You know, we, the clock is ticking and really... I, I'm worried. Yeah. And I'd say to my boss and my boss would just tell me, look, you've got to be creative. You're, you're the facilitator. You're the strategy guy. It, it comes from you. So you're in control. So I went away and I thought about this and I thought, well, how can I add to this? Um, and now, fortunately for me, I, I uh, uh, you know, although I was raised in Britain, I'm actually of Palestinian origin. Um, so it's not often I play that card in a, in a sort of um, in a Trump way or something. And but I walked into the room saying, look, do you know what, guys? There's a fourth culture in this room, and it's Palestinian. And so all the ideas that you're talking about, I'm going to stop labelling them British because people started saying that's a British idea, that's a Dutch idea. Yeah. They're all Palestinian ideas. Okay, I'm going to anonymise them. You don't know who they came from. And the change in the dynamic that this created between these parties was amazing because they just let go of the, oh, well, let's just look at it from what he's saying rather than who it, whose mouth it came from. Um and I mean, we still were, we still delivered our final product late, but we caught up a lot. It, it just changed the dynamics. So culture is yeah. a massively. Yeah, but I like that idea too. You know that that whole piece around stopping it from being your, you know, often in negotiation, it's if an idea has come from your opponent, um, you automatically discount it and go, well, it can't be any good because it's come from them. It's all biased in their favour. And you know, there's a really interesting piece of research. Um, around this, you know, one experiment in particular where they gave two groups of people a proposal for reducing arms back in the Cold War. And the two groups of people that were demographically the same, one of them, over half of the people said it favoured Russia versus the other one that said it was either neutral or, um, you know, fairly evenly split between America and Russia. And the only difference was the first one was told that it was the Russian proposal and the second group was told that the proposal had been put forward by President Reagan. It was that one fact that had them perceiving this same proposal quite differently. And, and I like that idea of going, this is just a proposal from a neutral independent or from, from nobody. Um, let's consider it purely on its merits. Well, I mean, that, that's spot on. And everything I do with teams nowadays, I try and depersonalize. I try and get mm. people some beforehand. I anonymize it. 
I share, I get everyone to sit in silence. I, I unashamedly stole that from Amazon and, you know, where you sit in silence at the start, because I need to make sure everyone is on the same page at the same piece of uh, knowledge base. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that put part about, um, actually, I, to go one step further about your opponent, um, similar, I've read a lot of research that as soon as you begin to know somebody, yeah. you are more favorably with it. So the first thing yeah. I'll do, I always use icebreakers and a very common one is, like get in pairs find the most exciting common thing that you have and then we're gonna have a competition which team found the most exciting thing and so yeah. combining getting to know each other with a competitive element really <laughs> is fun to do it takes about three minutes um and it's amazing how it changes the dynamic of a meeting yeah i think that's that's really interesting isn't it you know it's the, the concept of an icebreaker or the getting to know you when you're talking about a business negotiation um, particularly one that's between different companies versus, you know, where you're working internally, people are more familiar with that concept. But, you know, it'd be really interesting to see what people responded if you said, right, we're, we're getting into this negotiation with company A and company B. And before we do that, we're all going to get to know each other and play a little icebreaker. I suspect there'd be um, a fair amount of cynicism and scepticism, but it's a technique that could very well have a really good impact. Yeah, and that's where knowing your audience is. So I'm working with a, a mining team of a, a big corporate at the moment. And you, as you can imagine, there are a lot of alpha types there. Yep. They have no interest in all the research and, and what I'm about to do. So I, whereas I find some groups want to know, what are you about to do mm. with us? And they, they actually don't want that. And they, they feel it patronizing if I was doing games and stuff. Yep. Uh, but I still need to use those techniques. So, mm. um, so how I bring them in is on stealth right they don't realize they're doing these sort of things um and but it it, it works right yeah. and so yeah uh, you're right you know just going hey let's play a game um is you, you've got to know uh, and, and and terminology is a big important thing it's not what you say it's how you say it is often the case so look you've talked a little bit already Faris about some of the trial and error that you've had in learning negotiation through the career and it sounds like you've taken the time to go back and reflect on some of these experiences what are some of the other key things that you feel have really added to your ability to negotiate in the workplace that you would recommend to others I mean, definitely test and learn, definitely preparation. So things we've talked about, definitely getting to know the other party as much as possible. And a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm not afforded the option of going and meeting this person and having a, something in a comfortable environment. But there's so much you can research. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll say you can learn from social media. You can learn by asking others. Um, you know, don't just sit there going, well, I don't know them. So uh, hey, ho. I think making sure, and this applies much wider, you know, you know, I'm running a small business, mindset is everything. So I wouldn't go into a negotiation where I'm in a bad mood or yes. I'm not. And that can be from make sure it's at the right part of your day when you're high energy, make sure you, you, you know, you haven't done some, a difficult task beforehand, make sure you're sitting comfortably, you know, think about the environment, think about the, um, uh, and and then you can go on to the next level, right? Where you're you're super every little detail, which will will set up how you set up the agenda, what kind of font you use. All these things influence people. These are the this is the kind of world I'm fascinated in. And and uh, but very rarely do I go to the, the ultimate tricks because it is really comes down to know your objective, read the room, and flex, flex, flex. I love it. Any other stories or lessons that you want to share? I just say start from a young age. Um, yeah, I think it, looking back, one of the greatest things was my Palestinian roots and a competitive dad who loved to teach us all to haggle. 
So, uh, you know, growing up as a as a Palestinian in the UK, my dad would say, well, that doesn't matter, right? We're still going to haggle for everything, you know, just because you're in the supermarket and it says a fixed price, still go and argue with the guy. And I'm like, dad, I'm seven. I'm not meant to be arguing over a bunch of grapes. But, he, you know, it was great um, to have that encouragement and a safe environment when I was younger to practice all these skills. Because the last thing you want to do is be... Um, is to have to use this skill for the first time in a really important arena. Absolutely. It's interesting that you bring up this concept of haggling, though, because, you know, one of the things that I find is, you know, and once again, I focus mainly on the sort of interest-based principled negotiation, all the stuff out of Harvard's program on negotiation, which is very much about don't just go and haggle. It's more about the understanding interest because haggling is is very much a one-dimensional negotiation. What are your thoughts around that? I agree. All the haggling does is give you a confidence yeah. uh, and it's by the confidence to deliver a message. Yeah. Um, and that's actually where a lot of people hesitate, right? It's delivering what they think is a bad message, but it's just delivering a message. The other part, if you do it in a friendly way, and, and that's that's what the haggling I was taught was, do it with a smile on your face, have a coffee, make it make it fun for both parties. So uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. And certainly when I got into business, I was taught the much, you know, like you say, much more in-depth way of negotiating about make it about both parties, really understand the drivers around both and, and the arguments around both sides and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, as a, as a way to just deliver a message, have a bit of fun, it's a great little sound. Yeah, I think that piece about confidence is really critical too, isn't it? Because if you go in and I think it's, you know, it's interesting looking at some of the research around gender dynamics and negotiation and that side of things as well is that, you know, one of the reasons that men seem to enjoy negotiation more, not necessarily that they're better at it, but they enjoy it more is because they come in with a more confident approach to that engagement. Um, although some of them do bring a fairly combative approach to the negotiation rather than collaborative they do. And they, I mean, there is, I do see a gender divide. And, um, but also it's fascinating, you know, going back to culture, I remember reading a bit of research about how they got a group of salespeople to put on a British salespeople to put on an American accent and attempt their job. And they were more successful at selling products because they, their sort of perception of Americans more confident. Yeah. And I couldn't believe this, but I try it with teams. I get them to put on a persona, an accent or a chain, you know, imagine you're in this department as opposed to this department. And it's amazing the difference that they, they will have the same conversation. That's fascinating. Well, it sounds like you're doing some very interesting work there, Ferris, and some really great stories that you've shared. Before we wrap up the interview, is there anything that you would like to leave listeners which, with or is there, if somebody was interested in finding out more about what you do, what's the best way for them to connect with you? So uh, the name of my company is Shia Ghetto, uh, which is a Japanese word for a sharpening stone uh, because my company sharpens other companies. But it's uh, uh, shiaghetto.com is a great place to find out a bit more information or look me up on LinkedIn. My name is Faris Aranki. Yeah, I just would leave your listeners with uh, if you want to be successful in life, what we say in Shia Ghetto is it's not just about being the smartest person in the room. Um, it's about getting on with people, but it's also about focus. So we call it IQ, EQ and FQ. Uh, and you need all three. And I think that will stand, that, that's probably the same in your negotiation world, Nicole, and why I love the overlap that we have. Yeah, fantastic. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time, Faris. I'll put all of those contact details in the show notes for people as well. But thanks again for your time. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Likewise, Nicole. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Negotiation in Real Life podcast. If you've taken away some great tips from this episode, I'd love to hear about it. So please connect with me via my website or LinkedIn. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to learn more tips to improve your negotiations, head to our website, nicoledavidsonnegotiation.com.au, where you can follow my blog, view presentations and download resource sheets. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you get every episode as it comes out. If you have an interesting negotiation story that you'd like to share with my audience, head to the website and complete a guest application form. Until the next episode, happy negotiating.